Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Well, we're going to look at the Church of Philadelphia, and I'm going to go back a little bit at the end to kind of compare and contrast Sardis, uh, because Sardis was declared, in effect, a dead church. It's not that they didn't have spiritual life. Some people disagree with me on that, and they're allowed to be wrong. It's okay. (laughs) The reality of it is, this is a church, Sardis, that was not walking by faith. They had an ineffectual faith. They had a dead faith. They were saved, they were believers in Christ, but they were not walking with the Lord uh, in the midst of what they had been saved to. And as as a result, the Lord really chastises them for that. And we're going to come back to that a little bit because I think there's some comparisons here. I'm not going to (laughs) sing. Sorry, man. Sorry to disappoint (laughs) y'all. I do like that song, but by myself in the car, man, it's... Me, the Lord, and that's it. (laughs) Anyway, Philadelphia, there's an open door. And I love this because there's such a picture of a a group of believers, a body of believers that are willing to follow the Lord, that the Lord commends them, as we're going to look at, that they have a little power and that he's opened up a door of service for them. And they have the privilege and the opportunity of not only serving the Lord, But catch this, most importantly, experiencing God in the midst of their service. See, when we're walking by faith, we have the opportunity of being transformed even more by the Lord. Missions, in my mind, is simply a further opportunity of being discipled by Christ. When we talk about serving the Lord, it's just another opportunity, it's just another avenue to be deepened in our understanding of what the Lord has said about us, who he is, and how we can even further grow in Christ. When we're not serving, we're not walking by faith, we're not following God, we're not yielded to him, then we become stagnant in our growth as believers, which is really the picture in so many ways of Sardis. Let me give you, again, just a reminder. The main outline for these messages to the churches is there's usually a statement given concerning the Lord himself that pertains to the message that he is giving to the church. Secondly, there may or may not be, depending on the church, a commendation to the church. You're doing this well. You haven't allowed the Nicolaitans to come in. You haven't put up with their false teaching. You haven't, etc. So he commends them. And for some of the churches, there's no commending. Sardis is one of those. He deals with the church's sin if there is any. In Philadelphia, you're going to see that the Lord doesn't point this out in any way. He simply commends them. His command for the church to repent as needed and or to continue to persevere, to keep doing what they're doing, to press on, if you will. And then certainly there's a promise to those believers who are willing to walk with the Lord faithfully and to walk with him in the midst of the circumstance the Lord has for them. In Ephesus, we saw that they were doing good things, but they had left their first love. They were busy, 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 busy. Second generation believers, but they had gotten off track They had gotten caught up in the doing rather than the being. They had gotten their eyes off the Lord. They had left their first love. In Smyrna, they were being faithful. They were encouraged to continue to be faithful in spite of the persecution they were enduring. 
What a beautiful truth as we look at that church and recognize that they were being persecuted. They went through severe persecution. And if you think of the church age, that second period of time, they were going through unbelievable persecution. But in the midst of it, they were faithful, and the Lord commends them for that. Pergamum, they were allowing false teaching. The Lord does not commend them for this. He chastises them. He rebukes them for this, and he tells them to repent of it. Repent of it. Change your mind about what you say is right and good and what you've allowed and get back to the reality of the doctrine of Christ and grace and walking with the Lord in the midst of life. Thyatira, they were told to repent of the false teachings of Jezebel. Jezebel, I believe, was not an actual person. It was synonymous with a false religion that had come alongside. They had allowed it. The Lord comes to them and in effect says to them, stop allowing this in this body of believers. Sardis, the church that had a name, they were alive, they had a reputation, they had a facade, and yet the Lord knows their heart. He knew that their faith was ineffectual. They were not walking with the Lord. They had become comfortable. They were not watching. They were not guarding. And as a result, the Lord rebukes them for this. Well, then we get to the Church of Philadelphia, the open-door church. I can remember growing up, my dad always saying, well, the Lord's opened a door. The Lord's opened a door. How many have heard that? God's opened this door. Or you've prayed that way. Lord, would you open a door in order that we may walk through that and experience you? And maybe it's a, a door of service in terms of ministry. Maybe you're not sure exactly what the Lord has for you in terms of your journey in life. And so you're praying and asking the Lord, in effect, to reveal himself, to reveal his will to you. And we use that open door language in that particular sense. I grew up thinking that way, learning that way, thinking about how God is the one who goes before us and opens doors. The Philadelphia church, we're going to put it in three ways. First of all, there's the authority of Christ, the authority of Christ. Secondly, there's the affirmation of Christ to these believers. And third, there's the assurance of Christ. In spite of the persecution, in spite of the different things they were going through, the Lord assures them of his love for them. What a beautiful picture of his relationship to them. And let me, let me summarize it in this way. If you think of this church, what we are to get out of this, we are to faithfully follow the Lord in the work he will empower us to do. Uh, we don't open the door, folks. How many times we look at problems, we look at all kinds of situations, and we say, well, we gotta, we gotta do this. This is what we must do in order to fix this problem, etc." We can kind of go through that whole scenario over and over again because that's our natural bent. And the truth of the matter is the Lord's the one that opens the doors. What we are called to do is to faithfully follow the Lord in his work and in the work that he will empower us to actually do. So first of all, the authority of Christ. In verse 7, the Lord introduces himself as the one who is holy, true, and has the key of David. He's the all-powerful one who has the ability to open and keep open as well as close and keep closed. I love verse 7. He says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David. He's holy. He's set apart. He, he's unlike any other. He's unto himself. 
He's pure, he's righteous, but he's set apart, he's set above. Who is true, there's no error in him. There's no falseness in him. There's no lie in him. James says that there's not even the shifting shadow in him. There's not even a hint of a shadow within God because he's pure and he's righteous. And he goes on and he says, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Speaking of the Lord's authority, Probably quoting from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, which says, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder, and when he opens, no one will shut. Walverd states about this. He says, The key of David seems to refer to Isaiah 22, 22, where the key of the house of David was given to Eliakim, who then had access to all the wealth of the king. Christ earlier had been described as the one who holds the keys of death and hades. The reference here, however, seems to be to spiritual treasures. Think about that. He has the key of David. And as believers, when we know the Lord, we are in touch. We have a relationship with the one who not only has access to all the treasures of heaven, but is the treasure of heaven. Think about that. What a beautiful truth, right? Paul puts it uh, in Ephesians chapter 1 through 1, 3 that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have it all, folks, because we have Christ. All authority, all power, because Christ lives within us. We get to experience him and his life and how he leads. And we're called to walk faithfully with him in the work that he has for us as he begins to lead and guide and open the doors for us to walk into. What the Lord opens, no one can shut. And what the Lord shuts, no one can open. He's authoritative. He's all-powerful. When he speaks, he doesn't stutter. When he says what's going to happen, it takes place. We could go through the whole idea of the word of God and how he spoke even this earth and the universe into existence. He created all things by the word of his power, and now he holds all things together by the word of his power. He's authoritative. He's absolutely sovereign. When we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, do we understand that he lives within us and that he's all-powerful? What problem do we have today that he is not sufficient to the task? When we think about Ramona, when we think about what she's been through and what she's going through, we think about the family. Folks, God is sovereign. And we can hang on to that. We don't understand everything. It's one of the things I talked with the family about with Gerald and the rest. And David was down there. We prayed with them. God is sovereign. We don't understand all these things. We don't understand why the Lord allows certain things. But we do know this, that he's absolutely in authority over it all. And we can trust him. Why? Because his character is good. He is a God who is good all the time. He is loving. He is loving. And he has our best in mind always. Praise God for that. Well, there's the authority of Christ, but there's also the affirmation of Christ. The Lord affirms the Philadelphian believers. By the way, Philadelphia, I grew up there outside. It's the city of what? 
brotherly love, right? Philos, you know Greek and you don't even know it, right? <laughs> it's one of the words for love, right? And adalfas, it simply means brother. So the city of brotherly love, it's a, it's a play on words. I grew up in Philadelphia and I am not quite sure that that's exactly correct <laughs> in that place. I love Philadelphia. Yeah, there's somebody else from there, right? But I do love Philadelphia. I loved walking down the streets. And people are friend, more friendly there than what you really have been told. I can guarantee you that. Because uh, there's all kinds of perception issues these days. And what is it, uh, the catchphrase, fake news? Amen, right? But with that said, there's a long way to go for Philadelphia. Verses 8 through 9. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. In effect, he affirms them in several different ways. The first, he affirms their service. I know your deeds. It's a commendation. Behold, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power. There's, there's a commending. There's an affirmation here. I know what you're doing. And it's not a put down. It's not, hey, you've gotten off track. It's, I understand. I know the motive of it. I have insight into why you're doing what you're doing as well as what you're doing. And I'm commending you for this. And as a result, I'm actually opening up a door for you to walk through because you have a little power. Wow. See, it's not just the deed. It's actually the motive behind it. Some people can get caught up into kind of all this doing stuff, but their motive behind it is not necessarily for the glory of God. But God understands that. He knows that. He's able to see through it all. He's set apart. He's above it all. He's all-powerful. All power has been given to him by the Father because of what he's done. He's over it all, folks. He knows what our motives are. I know your deeds. What an amazing truth. When the Lord looks at our lives and when we begin to examine our lives and we invite the Holy Spirit through the word of God to examine our lives, we look into the perfect uh, mirror of the word of God. How do we view what it is that we're doing? How are we willing to come before the Lord and acknowledge to him what our motives are, what it is that we're actually about and why we're about it? Is it for his glory? Is it for him? Or is it for us? Is it because of the acknowledgement that somehow we think we're going to get? Is it because of the feeling that somehow we have? Whatever, you can fill in the blank. I know your deeds. He affirms their service. And he tells them that he's put before them an open door which no one can shut. All through scripture, this idea of an open door is used. I'm going to run through some uh, passages real fast with you, all right? So you listen quick, turn fast, and if you need the notes, let me know. Acts 14, 27, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Did you catch that? How he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. What's absolutely remarkable is the dependence and trust upon the power of God to accomplish the work and the people of God's willingness to follow and say, yes, Lord. 
It is not the people of God that open the door. It is the people of God that yield and say, Lord, you go first. And if you open the door, we know that you'll give us the power and the strength to walk through it and experience you. We're called to walk faithfully with the Lord. And when he opens those doors, just to simply say yes, Lord, and to trust him as he leads us through it. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 through 9, context here, he says, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Folks, it's, <laughs> when a door opens, it doesn't mean it's going to be a piece of cake. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easy. Generally speaking, when the Lord opens a door and there begins to be an effective service of the Lord, for the Lord, because of the strength of the Lord, light begins to be revealed through the people of God as we say yes to him and walk with him. In the midst of that, guess what? Satan doesn't like that too much. And there's usually adversaries. There's usually difficulties, and that's why we need to pray. In Ephesians chapter 6, the whole picture of spiritual warfare and Christ as our armor, we're invited to pray at all times for all the saints. How do we engage in spiritual warfare? We pray. We pray. In 2 Corinthians 2.12, he says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord. Catch this God opening the doors. Colossians 4, 2 through 3 says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for what? Our glory? Our thinking? Our culture? No, for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. When God opens a door for us, what, what's the door open for? It's to declare the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to take a message of hope to those who are lost and have no hope, who are without God, who have no purpose, who need life. They need Christ himself. So he affirms their service they were following the Lord. They were walking with him. Why did they have power? <laughs> they went to the gym a whole bunch of times. Come on. They had power because of Christ. Christ is our strength. Right? Paul says this over and over again in the epistles, that we would be strengthened in the inner man. How? By something we've done? No, by Christ himself. As Christ begins to live his life in and through us, and as we yield our lives to the Lord. Not only that, but now he affirms their faith. They have a little power, and this is the faith. They are persuaded that God is able. In verse 8, he tells them this, or that they've kept his word and they've not denied his name. They've been faithful. They've been true to follow the Lord in the midst of whatever the context may be that he's called them to. They've also kept the word of my perseverance, meaning they've remained true to the faith in verse 10. These are faithful believers that in the midst of their circumstances have a little power because Christ is being revealed in and through them. And as a result, the Lord not only affirms their service, but he affirms their faith. He affirms the fact that they believe in God and they're acting on it. They're not just passively sitting back saying, yes, Lord, we believe in you. They're saying, yes, Lord, we're willing to follow you. 
We're persuaded that you're leading us and guiding us, and as a result, we know that you'll empower us to do the very thing that you've called us into through the door that you've opened for us with regard to serving you in order to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How often do we tend to strive to accomplish something that God in his eternal infinite power alone can accomplish? Well, he affirms their faith, and then lastly, in this sense, verse 9, he affirms his love for them. I love this picture. They were being persecuted. They were going through a difficult time, and in verse 9, he says, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. What an affirmation. Oh, friend, do we, do we understand how much God loves us? unconditionally, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the the promise of salvation is unequivocal. We shall be saved. And immediately we have the opportunity of experiencing the great, vast love of God. It's not based on our works. It's not based on how good we do, how, how well we measure up. And as a result of that, we have a freedom in following the Lord, knowing that he loves us unconditionally. And we can begin to walk with him. The Lord affirms this Philadelphian church. He says, these people that are persecuting you, they're going to know that I love you, that I love you. We often look at ministry as if it's our responsibility to achieve. We take the commands of Christ, the Great Commission, any of them. And we immediately take it upon ourselves as if somehow we had the strength or the power in order to accomplish them. Folks, that's not grace. That's what Paul told the Galatian believers that they were doing. They were setting aside. They were nullifying the grace of God. Are you now being perfected by the law? Is this something that you think you now can do? Or are you going to continue to walk by faith and experience the power, the grace, the transforming ability of God in and through you. See, when God opens a door, nobody can shut it. And if God doesn't open that door, nobody can open it. The question is, are we walking with him faithfully in the midst of what he has for us, what he's calling us to, and are we experiencing his power in the midst of it? Are we growing in Christ as we walk with him, as we trust him, step by step, moment by moment, trusting that the Lord will bear the fruit, that the Lord will accomplish the work, that the Lord has called us into it. Therefore, the Lord has the strength and the wisdom and the grace and all the rest that is necessary for us in the midst of the arena that he's called us into. Are we walking with God in a way that we're fully persuaded that he is able in spite of our inability? That's the issue. This church understood that. Well, the Lord also assures these believers. Verse 10, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. And let me just deal with that one first. The Lord assures the believers they will be kept from the hour of testing. This is kind of an interesting thing because hour of testing, what is he talking about? I believe he's talking about the tribulation. Others disagree, that's fine. 
But the reality of it is they were already going through persecution. He's already acknowledged that. So he can't be talking about the persecution that they might go through, and therefore he's going to keep them from it. He's obviously speaking to something future. And at this moment, this is where I believe these messages to the churches begin to take a relevancy for us even today. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the picture here is that we will be kept, the church will be kept from the hour of testing. He doesn't say through, that would be a Greek preposition that's not used here. He says out of, which means you're not going to go through it. And so it becomes a tremendous promise to believers in that sense. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says this. Don't you love saying that guy's last name? Fruchtenbaum. Come on, man. That makes you, I mean, if you want to impress somebody, just say Arnold Fruchtenbaum. <laughs> he said the second promise is in verse 10, they will not go into the great tribulation period. And in Arnold's vernacular, the great tribulation is Daniel's 70th week. It is the seven-year period of time. It is the tribulation. It's not just the second half. No rebuke is given to this church, but rather he assures them of reward for their faithfulness, for faithful believers. In verse 11, he says, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown." He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So to summarize, the promise to those believers who overcome is first to be a pillar in the temple of God and to remain there. We're not talking about eternal life here, folks. These people are already saved. We're talking about reward. We're talking about faithful living today, which has a reward promised in the future. And the second thing is to have the name of God and the new Jerusalem written upon him. There's a special, unique relationship in the midst of this. When we begin to think about our walk with the Lord today, are we walking faithfully? Are we following him or walking by his power? Are we experiencing God? And are we having doors open for us? Or are we following him in the midst of what he has for us in, in our lives? And so, therefore, experiencing God's power, God's ability. Are we trusting him? And are we faithful to persevere in the midst of whatever it is that he's called us to? Because he gives us promises that if we are faithful as believers to do what he has said to do, meaning to trust him, to walk with him by faith, and he will give us the power and the strength to actually accomplish those things he calls us to, he will also amazingly reward us for it. I'm going to do a whole series of sermons probably about five years from now on rewards, <laughs> and we'll get there, okay? But it is remarkable when you think about overcoming. He's not saying overcome in order to earn salvation. He's not saying overcome in order to prove that you're really saved. He's saying overcome in order that he would reward us what he wants to reward us. What a beautiful truth. Are we walking faithfully with regard to what God has for us? And are we experiencing him in the midst of it? So back to Sardis for a minute. Let's compare and contrast this, right? They're dead. He 
says you have a name, you have a reputation that you're alive, but you're dead. Meaning you're ineffective. You have a faith that is dead. You are not following the Lord. You're saved. You have been given eternal life. Now you have the opportunity of walking with God, but you're not. You've become numb. You're not guarding. You're not watching. And what he warns them basically is if you don't start to watch and if you don't start to wake up, then I'm going to come to you quickly and there's going to be a disciplinary action taken. That's clear. Is our faith effective? Is our faith effective? That's a challenging question, isn't it? Because what we tend to do with that question is we tend to list out all the different things that we're doing in order to prove that we do have effective faith. Don't we? Well, I go to church. I have devotions. I take time to pray. I serve in this, and I do this, and I go here, and I try my best, and I do, my, the Lord, I do everything for the Lord. And really what we're talking about is how's your relationship with the Lord? How are you doing in your heart with the Lord. The works are just an outflow of your walk. Did you catch it? If you have a right relationship with the Lord and you're walking with him by faith, guess what? He will lead you in what it is that he has for you to do. If that's not taking place, and all things being equal, equal, I understand that there's times to sit and soak. There's times you need to get into the desert like Paul and just be taught of the Lord. Amen. But folks, over long periods of time, we've got to look at this and say, well, Lord, are you calling me into serving you? What is it that you would have for me? And the question then becomes, am I willing to actually walk with him in the midst of it? And we can go all kinds of angles on this because we can become driven in this in order to prove something and then take pride in it. But we can do the reverse We can say how much we love God and we're learning and we go to class after class after class after class after class. We get this head knowledge. But then the truth is, we're never actually serving the Lord. Neither of those things are what the Lord would have for us. Warren Wiersbe says this about Sardis, and he's actually quoting from Dr. Vance Havner. He says, the message to Sardis is a warning to all great churches that are living on past glory. Dr. Vance Havner has frequently reminded us that spiritual ministries often go through four stages. A man, a movement, a machine, and then a monument. Sardis was at the monument stage. But I love this last statement. But there was still hope. (laughs) Isn't that great? God can change anything. You can never count God out of the picture. The question is, are we walking with the Lord and is our faith effectual? Are we saying yes to him and experiencing him in the midst of how he's leading? And are we willing to say yes? No matter how we feel, no matter what we think, no matter what we think the results will be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Are we walking with him? Or are we looking back at past glory. Philadelphia, an open door had been placed before them, an invitation into service that the Lord had provided for them. The Lord commends them and says that they have a little power, meaning they have some ability. Why? Because of 
faith, because of their walk of faith in the Lord, because of their perseverance, because they were faithful to acknowledge the great name of Christ. And even in the midst of being persecuted, they did not fall away in that sense. They did not deny the name of Christ. They continued steadfastly on. And again, quoting from Warren Wiersbe, and I love this contrast to Sardis. He says, it's not the size or strength of a church that determines its ministry, but faith in the call and command of the Lord. God's commandments are God's enablements. If Jesus Christ gave them an open door, then he would see to it that they were able to walk through it. Beautiful. The Lord never commands us to do something that he doesn't empower us to actually accomplish. And in the midst of that, we can never take the credit for it. We can't say, look what we did. Look what I did. We say, oh, look what God is able to do. One of the signs of received ministry or ministry that's truly from the Lord is that the Lord gets the glory for it because he will not share his glory with any individual, with any group of people, with any church, with no one. Is the Lord receiving the glory for it? Or are we trying to take a little bit for ourselves? Martin Luther, in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, puts it this way. He says, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Wow, awesome. Isn't that awesome? Are you experiencing God's power? You walking with him by faith? You persevering in the midst of whatever it is that God has for you? And with joy, able to say that I know the Lord and I want to grow in Christ. I want to follow him. I want to persevere on step by step, moment by moment, experiencing my Lord for his glory, for his honor. Are we walking faithfully? And what it is that God has called us to and experiencing his power in the midst of that. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. 